Farming ranks among the most technologically intensive and productive industries. One reason is ongoing research. Now the Agricultural Research Service, part of the Agriculture Department, has a new administrator. Here with an update on that research agenda, Simon Liu. Mr. Liu, good to have you with us. Good morning. And if you would, just review the mission of the Agricultural Research Service. I think people think of it as a big farm-looking type place in Beltsville, Maryland. But what actually happens there? Well, as you know, that ARS, uh, Agricultural Research Service, is USDA's chief scientific in-house research agency. Our mission is very, very simple. We deliver scientific solutions to national and global agriculture challenges. Our vision is also very straightforward. We like to be a global leader in our cultural discoveries through scientific excellence. So ARS, currently we have about 2,000 PhD research scientists and postdocs and 6,000 other employees. Our current budget in FY 2023 is $1.7 billion. We are currently conducting 600-plus research projects around the country. Those research projects address important agricultural challenges, such as enhancing crop production and protection, increasing animal production and protections, preserving natural resources, dealing with climate change, ensuring the long-term sustainability of agricultural systems, providing nutritious food, protecting food safety, improving food quality, and others. Yeah, so that's pretty much everything from putting a seed in the ground or a a chicken egg in a hatchery to delivery, you know, to the American public. And does the research take the form mostly of grants to academic and other institutions? Or you've got 2,000 PhDs on staff. How does it break down on who does all the research? As a matter of fact, ARS, we are an intramural research agency. So in a sense that the the kind of research we do are internal people, those 2,000 PhD research scientists. So those people conducting research around the 90-plus locations around the country uh, is much more beyond just Beltsville. Each location has different weather, different soil type, uh, different growing environmental conditions. So as a result, we need to conduct agricultural research at many different locations around the country to support the local farmers and ranchers. Agriculture is local. So not only within the country, we also have overseas laboratories in Australia, in Argentina, France, and Greece. We also collaborate a great deal with the researchers from the university. So we don't give grant. However, we collaborate with the researcher from the universities, the private companies, other nonprofit organizations, and also other countries. Sure. And I wanted to ask you about one of the particular topics, and that is agricultural productivity. And I think in the 20th century, beginning early in the 20th century, there was really revolutionary exponential increase in farm productivity. And is that still a grand challenge, do you think? Is there room for that kind of growth and productivity in the future as the world population grows and farmland shrinks? Absolutely. We continue to push uh, the productivity of crops, animals from many different fronts, primarily leveraging the uh, 
advanced technology like the genomic uh, selection and the genomic technologies. So, yes, the endeavor continue. As you know that in the past, say, 70 years, the yield of crops increased three times. This increase need to be continued. We find, we try to find any ways that we can continue to increase the productivity so that we can feed the world. And when it comes to pests that eat crops or otherwise harm the plants that produce crops, that's more of a cat and mouse game because you might solve one pest, you know, the boll weevil or something I think is mostly done for, but then new ones arise. And so you're always chasing the latest threat. That fair way to put it? Absolutely. As you know, the climate change impact a lot of on the insect and the pests. So uh, we need to continue to do the research to see the trend of the insect and the pest and then uh, adopt an integrated pest management approach so that we can control just one pet, but also many, many different pets, not just protect one crop, but also many different crops also. So it's an integrated pest management approach. We're speaking with Simon Liu. He is administrator of the Agricultural Research Service, and you are just named administrator, but you were acting for a couple of years, and you actually have a long history there. Tell us about yourself, how you come to the farming and agriculture research business. Well, I would say that uh, having the opportunity to serve as an ARS administrator to support our undersecretary, Dr. Jacob Xiang, our Secretary Vilsack, has truly been the greatest honor of my professional career. I have worked for five different federal agencies in the past 38 years. So first, I worked as a contractor to support NASA, NASA mission for 10 years. I worked primarily on three different projects. First, as a programmer to support the Earth observing system. Second, as an engineer to support a space station project. And then the third, as a project manager to lead the Landsat 7's mission. So that was my first federal job, working as a contractor supporting NASA mission. And after that, I worked for the Treasury Department for three years. First, served as a technical advisor to the assistant secretary and then the chief information technology architect for the department. So then I move on to the justice department. I worked there for three years. First, I served as an assistant director for the information management and security and move up to the deputy director and then the acting director. And after DOJ, I moved to NIH. I worked for the National Library of Medicine at NIH for 10 years as an associate director and chief information officer for the library. And my last leg is for the Agricultural Research Service. I worked for ARS since 2010. First as the director of National Agricultural Library for four years, and then as the associate administrator for research operations and management for seven years. So I will say this is my last stop in my career. <laughs> now, none of those jobs, of course, you were not a farmer, for example, but being at all these years, 13 years at USDA, do you at least like plant a few tomatoes in the backyard to get a feel for what the soil can do? 
Well, certainly I do that kind of, I do a lot of studies, uh, but uh, let me go back to my background. I was a farm boy. My parents, they are farmers. My brother, they are farmers. So as a farm boy, my passion is to get, to get back to the agriculture industry and provide help, assistance to farmers and ranchers. That include my brother. They are conducting farming right now. So at this point of my career, I need to answer the call of my soul and come home to help the ag industry. That's why I come to ARS, and ARS and USDA is really my home. And I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to serve at home. The passion of the heart really uh, does help. And just a final question, I wanted to get back to the research topic that is done is there a grant program for academic research or maybe even industrial or nonprofit research outside of academia as part of the program? The grant organization is belong to my sister organization, which is the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. And NEFA belong to the same mission area as ARS. So they are an extramural agency. We are the intramural agency. Our budget, those two agencies, our budget are roughly similar. We are 1.7, they are about 1.8 billion. All right, so that's about what, you know, the country spends on eggs in a week. So it's a pretty good leverage you've got there. Simon Liu is administrator of the Agricultural Research Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration, came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century 
educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, 
we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.